cavern, the fight begins. Matthias oh. and the Wiret go back and forth, landing hits on each other. You summarized this really succinctly, but this is a really well-written fight. They are. Like, this is the point where it's like, I, I'm grateful when we hit the fight scenes because it's very easy for me to gloss or summarize over them. But it's not really fair for how well written these fights are. Like, he describes them very well. He he gets the action, the tenseness of it in the wording and the word usage. Yeah, it is really, really good. And it's really it's, it, it's just it's it's just a a like you would think this big hulking Weeret would have the advantage and to a degree like it does, but Matthias is just a fucking phenomenal fighter. Like he's holding his own against this hulking massive thing. It's it's agility versus um bulk. Yeah, it's sure he's He's getting a lot of hits in, but this thing is so dang big that it doesn't stagger it too much. Yeah. And then we cut to the kids in their cell, and they've been trying to escape any way they could. Like, bashing against the door with their bodies, chewing on the door, like, beating at it with their paws and stuff like that. Like, they are trying to get out because they know they heard their parents. Mm-hmm. And when they hear the drum that Nadaz used to call the rats, they wonder if it's to call the rats to a feast with them as the entree. They're like, oh my god, what if they're going to eat us? Which, you know what? Fair assumption. Very fair, considering everything they've gone through up to this point. Yeah. And the fact that I uh, I still think that the, the rat horde eats babies. Like, how else do they get the meat and protein they require? Because they've clearly overhunted above ground. Yeah, there's not enough bugs. Unless they raise cave bugs, maybe? Ah, uh, who knows. Little, so, like, oh, maybe maybe the creepy glow is, like, glow worms <laughs> that they raise. Maybe. That'd be actually really cool. So oh, we can't get into speculative biology. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but all that is lucky... Lagalog asks Flug to let him rest right against the door of the kid's cell. He tells Flug that once they are outside, he is going to be the new Lagalog. Flug tries to protest, but Lagalog tells him that that's the rules. He's going to be the next Lagalog. Uh, and when Flug strikes the door out of anger, they hear the sound of someone on the other side hitting it. And then they realize, oh, it's the kids. Yeah. And they pick the lock to let them out. Because they do, like, they, they, what happens is they go, they hear the kids shouting, like, Red Wall and stuff like that. And they respond with, like, the logalog call. But <laughs> the kids on the other side can tell that that's what it is. Yeah, they're, they're just and like, so what kind of kids, war cry is that? <laughs> the kids not knowing it's the Gusim, once the door is open, they charge. Like, Maddie almost brains Flug. The other kids are, like, on everybody else. But then he hears Logalog's voice, realizes who it, who they're attacking, and calls for everybody to stop. Like, what is it specifically? It's really cute. He's just like, he's like, um... No, ba, ba, ba. He says, Matameo, it's me, Logalog. Matameo had Flug by the throat. His paws dropped with a clank of manacles as he yelled out, Stop! They're friends! Yep. It's good shit. Mm -hmm. The kids are freed from the chains and told of their parents being there, and the kids start to celebrate. Uh, Flug says uh, to thank Logalog, though, because if he hadn't needed to rest, they would have never found them. When uh, Matameo goes to thank Logalog, though, he realizes that the shrew leader has passed away with a smile on his face from having fulfilled his promise to Matthias. I truthfully think, like, this is the best, like, hero death of the book. Honestly. Because it's excellently bittersweet. He managed to keep his promise. The kids are safe. He's done what he needed to do. He can rest peacefully now. Mm-hmm. 
And it's it's and... bittersweet, it's sad, but it's also good at the same time. And it's like, mm-hmm. eh, I cry about Logalog. Honestly, like, I, I like, I, I like the Logalogs. They're, they're kind of fun, even if they're usually just plot tools. Um, Big but this Logalog, I'm glad that he gets a, he gets a good death. Mm-hmm. I mean, sure, a good death isn't as good as a good life, but it's better than nothing. <laughs> I mean, but he's lived a good life, at least. Yeah. So, back at the fight, Matthias is tiring. Uh, Orlando and Basil share some commentary about the fight while Matthias manages a small breather. As Basil predicts, though, he launches into a savage attack that makes the Weeret really fight for his life. Again, they exchange blows, but this exchange ends with Matthias being launched over the edge of the ledge into open air. And then there is an abrupt cut to Redwall. To that which... has Ironbeak bathing in the pond. Uh, Mangus is just like, I don't understand. Like, internally, like, I don't understand how anybody could bathe in the water that they drink. Which is, well, yeah, in the water they drink, that's true. But it's also he... still like, I don't understand how anybody could bathe. Right. Like, which, which amuses me because, like, Corvids are fairly cleanly birds. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Also, I think Mangy's is just a weirdo. Also, though, like, I, I, with, like, this abrupt cut, I put, damn it, Brian, focus, man! Like, I know this is writing. You leave on a cliffhanger to keep people reading, but you do that at the end of a chapter. Not in the middle of a chapter! You don't start a chapter like this and then cut directly. This is what you do at the end of a chapter to keep people reading. Obviously, and we all needed to know what was going on at Redwall right at this fucking moment. Right at this moment. And and I love that uh, drunk Izzy wrote, you son of a fudge. fudge. Yeah, I, I tried to spell fuck and put F-U-C-J. That's like the only drunk typo you made, though, I think, which yeah, amused me. Yeah, most of them I actually fixed as I was going, and that one I just hit enter too soon and didn't feel like editing it. Mm-hmm. It still makes me giggle, though. Just, I love that. Damn it, Brian. Focus, man. You son of a fuck. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Anyway. So when Ironbeak is done bathing, he orders Mangies to collect all of his birds. It's time to end this once and for all. No schemes, no plots, just fighting. Mangies feels dread, but obeys. He cannot refuse Ironbeak's orders. Then we swap to... The Redwallers, Sister May spikes, strikes water uh, that <laughs> night, uh, which gives her a chance to finally look over the fierce bird's wing. Like, she just, uh, the the strongest sleeping draught, basically. This woman is a schemer. She, the, the book straight up calls her a schemer. It is so good. Like, I love that Sister May is just allowed to be this, this little sneaky turd sometimes. <laughs> Like, if she were a fox, they would straight up call her a villain. She's just like, I get to do the thing. Yeah. You, God, dog. Um, she you she has been unleashed. She's she no longer contained. <laughs> uh, the abbot, Joan, and Sister May all gather to help fix the broken wing. They're comparing, like, the books that they have... And asking Ambrose to bring them things. I, I love... Ambr- Ambrose is begrudgingly helping and, like, grumbling as he pushes a barrel to prop up the wing. Uh, they, <laughs> like, set him, uh, send him to, like, fetch supplies for them, like needles, river mud, onion skin, skins, so on. And he grumps that he may as well fetch their meals and tea, too. And af- immediately after, they ask him to ask Winifred to do that. <laughs> yeah. Because they're going to be <laughs> then, down there all day. Uh, Kit thought this was an error, but it also does it in my book. It just super abruptly cuts back to Ironbeak and Mangies without a paragraph break. In my book, it's the start of the next page that it does this on. Like, it's just, mm-hmm. ah, turn the page, we're at Ironbeak and Mangies. For you, it was just no paragraph break. It's straight, yeah, it's straight in the middle of a page. It's page 379 for those who are reading along who have my uh, same edition. Um but it just abruptly cuts. And knowing, knowing that in your book, it's the start of a page that makes a lot more sense. Yeah, because this is a more recent copy. Yeah, it was probably a case of when they were, like, scaling it down. Because, like, mine's one of the smaller, like, it's not small print, but, like, average print. Not, you know, like, it's a smaller yeah. book. Um, so they probably just, that's probably one paragraph break that they missed needing to add because it was at the start of the page. Um, but still, it was like, I was reading it, and then all of a sudden, like, Iron Beaks there, and I'm like, huh? What? What? 
Sir. Anyway. But yeah, so Iron Beak is interrupted from his attempt to pull out a worm by a cringing Mengis. The crow says that what's happened wasn't his fault and please don't beat him. He tells an impatient Iron Beak that the rooks and magpies refuse to leave the dormitory. Uh, so frightened were they by the visit of the ghost mouse last night. Iron Beak is pissed off. He goes to have a talk with them, which surmounts to a severe scolding, beating, and punishment as he chases the birds out the window. It is not for nothing that he was the most feared bird in the North. Like, mm-hmm. Mangies is, like, we get all this from the point of view of Mangies, who is just listening and, like, wincing and cringing as he hears mm-hmm. Iron Beak, like, just go off on them and then, like, start chasing them around the room, beating them up, and then kicking them out of the window in a flurry of feathers. Mm-hmm. Like, this, this, this ge- the general is mad. Because, mm-hmm. like, these were his crack troops. These were his men. And now they're just, they're a bunch of silly cowards who are cowering from a ghost mouse who's not even real. Like, this poor bird, like, it's no wonder he's losing his mind because all of his men have just failed him. All of his resources have come to naught. Like, I don't blame him for getting cranky and temperamental because everything he's been working for, working towards all the years that he and his men have been such a good team, it's all crumbling in front of him just because of some stupid mice. Yep. He's just fucking pissed. Iron Beak's fucking pissed. <laughs> uh, so now we cut back to um, the underground. Matthias has managed to grab the rope of a basket that had been lowered earlier. By the way, at one point, they did briefly mention that a basket had been lowered down past the edge. Mm-hmm. During no- the fight. Nothing else was seen of this. Um, this turn now. is what you call a Shekhov's gun. <laughs> and it doesn't quite stop his tumble, and the Weeret starts hacking at the rope to send him to his death by gravity. The rescuers charge to try and stop him, slaying many a rat, but fail. The rope is cut, and Matthias falls. And then Orlando slays the Wee Ret, now in full battle fury over the presumed death of his friend Matthias. Like, the Wee Ret is just terrified of Orlando, because Orlando is also huge. It's He's probably the same size as the Wee Ret, or even a little bigger. Yeah, like, and, oh no, somebody my size. Fuck me. And then yeah. he dies. Uh, Matthias, of course, does not die. He is saved by the basket, which is padded with grass and purple cloth. And it's padded because it carries the old, broken body of Malchorus himself, a scabrous old polecat, who crawls towards the dazed Matthias, declaring he must die for having seen him. And, like, at first Matthias doesn't even realize that that is what Malchorus is. Yeah, he's still just dazed from the fall. You know, even if he landed on something soft, which also, ew. Um, he He's just trying to get his wits back about him. And then all of a sudden this weird, gross little thing is crawling towards him going, You must die. You have seen Malchus. Yep. It's, uh... There was a slobbering, snarling noise from within the basket. Then it fell to one side as something rolled out. That the creature on the floor beside the basket bore little resemblance to the high statue on the ledge. This Malchris was gross. The great white mound of scabrous fur, now broken by the weight that had dropped on it from above, was something out of a bad dream. Short floppy paws with long mottled nails which hung limply reached up to wipe the crusting bleariness from eyes dimmed and half shut with age. The mouth sagged open, revealing blackened stumps of teeth. It's just absolutely gross and like Mm -hmm. Matthias calls it a broken vision of evil Mm -hmm. surely such a thing never lived above or below ground when Malchorus spoke his voice was thin and reedy it is they describe Malchorus like awfully and you know what yeah yeah it's it's true like if he's someone who's wicked enough to do all this it's it's definitely a case like okay now this time for me to pop in as like the Christianity tangent, but not just Christianity did this either. A lot of religions in Europe were big on the fact that if you looked beautiful, you were a good person. If you looked ugly, it's because you had sinned and that was your punishment. That was a big part of a lot of religions back then. Unless so of course, if you are a religion from what, like, pretty much, like, through... 
like Russia and like all of Asia and then the islands. Well, that's why I specified Europe. Yeah. Although Russia is, yeah. But that is why I specified Europe. But also like, I'm talking like Rome too. Like there's that famous story of the prostitute who said like, look, would the gods want you to destroy something this beautiful? And uh, she's showing off her body and they're like, you know what? No, you're right. You're right. Okay. She's like, look at these tits. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> that but, is one of my favorite stories. <laughs> oh, it's so awesome. It, it, but that is why in a lot of classic European-centric stories, the villains are often hideous or deformed in some way because it's like the outer body is showing the inner evil. Which is um, stupid. Which is... Which like, is why, you know... At like, what point would God be like, yeah, no, I'm going to punish this person by making them ugly. Like, that's right? not how that works. Right. I mean, like, even even when, like, Lucifer is cast down, like, they say he was shattered, but he is still the most beautiful angel. And they... <laughs> Just like, thinking of those two statues. Literally, that's what that's... That's why they brother. Look- like that's you have why to make this like less that. horny and then he made it more horny but like that's why he looks like that because lucifer is the most beautiful angel he still is the most beautiful angel that's why he is so dangerous because he's so beautiful and alluring like even the bible is like don't trust what your eyes see beautiful things can be dangerous too snakes are beautiful and lovely creatures but they can kill you because they are venomous you know and it's just you see this, again, like, this is a really good classic example of, like, Christian, European-based fantasy Arthurian bullshit, where the evil villain is ugly, and it's, I, I like it, Malkaris it's good. is Gollum. Yeah? His kingdom is his precious. His precious. And, like, My the precious. thing that cracks me up is, like, he's this old, withered stump. It's like, you're building this huge kingdom, you're just gonna die soon, dude. What's the point? <laughs> The point is that everybody who built it will remember that they built it because of him. Yeah, pretty much. The the power of ego. Here Here is uh, Ozymandias, you know. Um, <laughs> literally Ozymandias with the way the statue crumbles <laughs> later. So, Malchris tries to go for, Martin, uh, for Martin's sword uh, and almost grabs it, but is stopped by a flung rock that hits him and he arches in pain. Like, the description of this is really visceral. And then he's hit by a second rock, and Matthias grabs the sword and, like, scoots out of the way as the slaves, who are still manacled, advance on Malchris, ready to kill him. Like, they they literally are, like, hurling rocks at him saying die evil one die we will bury you with pieces of your own kingdom and they just throw rocks he on malchorus's body until he is crushed to death and then they continue to do it because you know they're angry they're traumatized yeah and mark uh sorry brian writes Really, like, sometimes his villain deaths aren't always satisfying. Like, I still don't like uh, Asmodeus' death. But um, he generally writes really good villain deaths. And this is probably one of the best ones because the slaves get the catharsis of killing the one who's made them suffer like this. They, mm-hmm. they are given the power to kill this creature that has made their life hell for presumably a few seasons by now in their life. And they crush him. They win. They triumph over him and win back their freedom by destroying this creature who took them from their homes and from their lives and took their childhood in a lot of ways. And I also make a note that Ryan is pretty partial to crushing deaths for villains. There's a bell, there's rocks, there was the boulder all the way back in Mossflower that killed that poor, um, weasel? Whatever he was. Um, (laughs) That or getting eaten by birds. Or getting eaten by birds. Um, or drowning. Or drowning. He's partial to drowning too. But I made a joke about like, we've got bells and rocks. Who's going to get crushed next? To which Squirrel says, maybe a boat. <laughs> maybe a like, boat. I don't know if a boat crushes somebody, but I would not put it past Brian. No, not at all. So once the deed is done, Matthias sets about to freeing all of the slaves as best as he can in the moment by cutting the chains. He has 
uh, one of the slaves, like, hold his chains against a rock and then just breaks them with Martin's sword because nothing can stand up to a sword that's made of uh, stone from the sky. It's, it's basically, which is actually really how it was for a lot of, like, early iron or is iron or steel. Um, iron swords were made using meteor metal because they still didn't really know how to make iron yet. But when a meteor would fall, it's like, hey, there's free iron. And they would yeah. turn them into swords. Like, there's a really famous sword from uh, Tutankhamun's um, burial, which was made from a meteorite. Is good. Yeah. While he is freeing them, a rat approaches with a whip and is killed by a squirrel named Elmtail with the chain left on his arms. And I also make a note here where um, I, I really like that Matthias takes the time to ask him, what is your name? Because the, like we've, we call them like the former slaves, the, the freed slaves, stuff like that. But like getting Elmtel's name reminds us that these are people who had lives. They are individuals, not just a horde. And the, the power of a name is so important and getting elm tell elm tales name really brings home that these are people these mm -hmm. are kids who had lives and names before this and it helps them reclaim some of their well personhood yeah it's real good uh Elmtail declares that he will free himself with the very chain that held him a prisoner, and many of the other uh, former slaves agree enthusiastically. Back up on the ledge, the rescuers are in a tight spot. They've made a, like, basically a death circle. Hand-to-hand uh, -hand fighters outside, slingers and archers on the inside. It seems hopeless. They can kill tens of rats, and twenty more will take their place. Though, their hope is bolstered by the arrival of the kids, coming to aid in the fight. It even helps to slowly turn the tide, despite Nadaz's attempts to whip his fighters into further fury. Like, he is just going absolutely bonkers, like... Yeah, dancing on the drum. Thing, dancing and just, like, shrieking. Like, that, that cultish fury, it is terrifying. Mm -hmm. Back in the abbey, the abbot puts his foot down. No more ghost antics, no more tricks. He knows that if it keeps up, something terrible will happen, and Cornflower is treating it too much like a joke. When she challenges him by saying that Matthias would have approved, he turns her defiance around on her. What would he say to Matthias if he marched home only to find her hurt or dead due to her charade? And... I... And she relents, and the abbot asks Constance to take the armor back to the gatehouse, and she takes it into the tunnel to do so. I really like uh, Abbot Mordalphus. He's my favorite so far out of the app. Like, not that we've had many, but We've he... had three. Yeah, we've had Abish three. Germain, the Abbot from the previous book, and then Abbot Mordalphus. And so far, Mordalphus has been the best one. He's the most down to earth. Uh, uh, listen! He's the, <laughs> He's the one... Germain! Okay, yes! I'm talking of the... Sorry. Um, between, anyway, but I, I like Mordalphus. He's down to earth and he cares about his people. He's not arrogant. He doesn't have that pomp or the arrogance that his predecessor had. And he's right. Like, she's being cocky. She's treating this like it's a joke now. And I think to an extent she's using it as a distraction from worrying about her family and the ones she who are lost. She absolutely is. This is a bad coping mechanism. Mm-hmm. And he's calling her on it. He's saying, like, what is the point of saving the Abbey if you're not here for Matthias when he comes back? And it, it works. Like, she needs this slap, this wake-up call of, like, enough's enough. Like, you've done what you can. You've done a good job. But you need to stop and think about yourself and your family. Yep. But yes. So Iron Beak has a stroke of luck while looking for fish in the pond. He spots Constance going into the gatehouse, because one minute she's not there, the next minute she's there, and she goes into the gatehouse. And he's so lucky that he's able to lock her into the gatehouse and fly away with the key. 
And Constance tries to find an escape, but is out of luck. Like, she hears the door slam and then can't get it open, but she doesn't see anybody outside. Yeah, at There's first she thinks it's a All the windows prank. are too small. The door can't be broken down because it is solid oak with, like, iron rivets and stuff like that. Are you kidding? Break down this door? This is hand-carved mahogany. <laughs> Uh, there's at least water and dried fruit, though, so she won't be in too much distress. All she can do is wait. Uh, in the cellar, Strike is awake and ready to fly. Her wing is repaired, but not healed, though. When she complains too loudly and almost attempts to leave, Sister May threatens her with a wooden ladle. And we also have a confirmation here that they do indeed make and use fish glue. Yeah, they did, uh, there's a word for what they did with her feathers. Um, I know Danielle would know it. Uh, imping. It's, it's imping. imping. Yes, yes, imping. They, I... they imp, they, they imp her wings with, like, other feathers mm-hmm. so that, like, she'll have, like, the, the feathers needed to fly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they, like, uh, use, like, the fish glue and stuff. Like, they basically perform surgery on her wing. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is wild to me. Early, like, early surgery was a thing to an extent. Like It was! Didn't... It was also extremely fucking dangerous. Mm-hmm, because they didn't have the sanitary conditions that we had, or even Thank the... God they had so much alcohol. Yeah. <laughs> and other stuff that we wouldn't use nowadays. Hey, you need to get knocked out here, some opium. Yeah, basically. <laughs> here, just eat these poppies, it's fine. I saw someone make a joke about, like, um, how the potions in Legends Arceus are so much more effective than modern potions. Like, they restore 60 HP instead of 20. And someone did a little comic about, like, the two modern folks being like, yeah, I don't know why the potions are so much more effective. And she's kind of looking at it like, she's they probably use opium. That's why. <laughs> God, Jesus. Just dope your Pokemon up on opium. It's fine. You can't be in pain if you're... <laughs> High off your mind! (laughs) So, Strike calls Sister May a warrior and says that she should have been born a red kite. Uh, Sister May is not exactly pleased by the compliment. (laughs) She's like, I'm fine being a mouse. What a warrior! Sissy May should have been red kite. The very idea of it, you feathery baggage. (laughs) (laughs) She calls her a fucking suitcase. It's so cute. Um... And then it, like, skips forward a little bit, kind of. Um, Like, Sister May and Cornflower are trying to keep Rolo away from the kite. Uh, He's finally distracted by joining his friends at the barricade looking for birds. And he says, no birds. No birds here. The two ladies wonder, like, why they haven't seen birds for a couple of days. Maybe Iron Beak knows it would make him look bad to try and take Cavern Hall again. Or perhaps they're just waiting out the heat, just like they are. Uh, unfortunately, the birds are not doing anything like that. Um, Iron Beak comforts his men, saying, well, Maybe there had been a ghost, but it was only a trick. Even he knew tired eyes were easy to fool. But now was the time to strike. The Red Wallers were growing complacent. Silence and a night attack was the key. They would take the Abbey that night. Because the thing is, is they haven't really been putting people up to watch the the blockade. Which, Which staggers me. Yeah. But also, know. they aren't fighters. And they yeah. don't have Constance. That's true. Constance is gone, so... Because Constance would have put somebody on it, but they don't have her right now. But it's like, there are still people in the cavern hall who survived the... Well, then again, we remember... We remember how bad they were at keeping guards during Redwall, too. Yep. Like, this is, like, one of the big weaknesses of the Redwallers. They're just not good at keeping guard. Because they don't, like, they're not used to having to do it. Right. Because, like, who would come and attack them? They're the kind of people they don't get attacked. Mm-hmm. Which is a mistake on their part, but, you know. Yeah. So, down in the caves, the fight churns on. The kids are happy to join their parents in the fight. Basil and Cheek attempt to silence the chanting and ranting Nadaz is doing with one of his own rats by throwing the rat at him. <laughs> just, they just like haul this this rat up, and they're like yeet. But he falls he falls short of Nadaz and falls under the spears of his fellows. Nadaz continues to dance on the drum, keeping his horde eager to fight. 
Uh, and the kids, they fight admirably, but the rats are still coming. Because there's just so fucking many of them. Yeah, like I said, hundreds of these rats. It, it is a horde. This is like in cartoon, like, this, this is fucking Ratatouille when all the rats are in the kitchen and there's just, <laughs> they all just, like, you, you don't even quite realize how many of them there were in the kitchen until they all try and leave. Uh-huh. And then it's like, oh god, that's a lot of rats. Yeah. Uh, Matthias, now we're, we, we, we skip over to Matthias, he is freeing slaves left and right. He is, he is like a man possessed freeing people. Like, going through, he's freeing rats, kill, like, freeing rats, freeing slaves, and killing any other, like, slavers he comes across. And the, the slaves are, like, following him. Uh, finally, though, he reaches the dead end with the carving of Malchorus, uh, and he drops his guard in front of it, because he knows that this is, like, the end, there's nothing past this, and is promptly stunned by Slagger, who'd been lurking in the shadows. He thanks Matthias for killing Malchorus, and now he can rule above and below as soon as he kills Matthias with his own sword. But before he can, though, the slaves spot him and charge, howling in rage and hate because they recognize the one who brought them to this place. Mm-hmm. And he chooses, as always, to flee. Using the secret latch, he finds a path to the surface, swearing it isn't over. He will have the life of father and son and the sword of Martin. Now, here's the thing. We both were like, mm. <laughs> that's a little famous. weird. We understand now, like, wanting to have, like, a kingdom. But the sword of Martin, he was calling it cursed. Like, he very much did not trust this sword. Then all of a sudden he's like, I want it now. Like, we do get an explanation in a little bit. But it still feels incredibly out of place and out of character for him to all of a sudden want this sword. Like, Now, the thing is, this is the start of us seeing him going crazy. Because for some reason, Brian likes to, towards the end of the books write his villains going like crazy mm-hmm. like they're losing their minds over everything that's going on like iron beak does it to a degree uh slagger is doing it malchorus was probably already there uh well malchorus like, was yeah this is it's just a really weird thing that brian does with his villains that just throws them out of character they, they, they start slipping up and grasping the idiot ball. Like, they start making mistakes that they would never have made before. And yeah. I think... I and think it'd like, be one thing <sighs> if they were, like, injured or, like, like malnourished or anything like that. Like, that I would... Because that kind of shit fucks up people's brains, like, yeah. normally. But Slagger is fine. Yeah. Iron he's... Beak is fine. Yeah. Well, Iron Beak doesn't go crazy at the end. It's more that, like, he finally... He's getting super duper fucking frustrated. Right. Which can also kind of make you make mistakes because you're mm-hmm. just angry. Yeah. Slagger, though, is fine. Like, yeah, he's he's frustrated and he's like, oh, this isn't going at all to plan. But... All of a sudden he wants the sword? It's like... yeah. Ugh. He's been dealing with frustration and, like, plan adjustments this whole time. Yeah. And so it doesn't make sense that he would grasp the idiot ball this hard. Yeah. I mean, it's it's also maybe, like, adrenaline might be making him just... It's a mix... I think it might be, like, a mix of adrenaline plus, you know... It's also, like, hyping up the legend of the sword. Everybody wants the sword because the sword is power. Like, no matter how much, like, Brian tries to write it that, like, oh, the sword is not what makes you powerful. It is. Well, it's this, straight up the is. sword, it's the, it's the reputation of the mm-hmm. sword. But it, it is still true that the sword does not make somebody a warrior. Mm-hmm. Like, that's the biggest thing. Like, everybody thinks that it is magic and it will make them powerful. And to a degree... Yeah, but that's on reputation. The mm-hmm. sword does not make a warrior because it is shown time and again when they lose the sword or don't have it, the person who is the champion of Redwall is still a warrior. Yeah, they'll find other ways to fight. Yeah, because it's not the weapon, it is the way they treat other people. Mm-hmm. 
So the slaves aid Matthias, helping him up and telling him that how the fox vanished. And he decides that the fox isn't important because, you know, it's true. The fox right now, not important. If he's not there, he's not going to focus on him. Right now, he and his fellows need to go aid the ones fighting on the ledge. He tells them to join in his war cry, and the growing horde behind him raise the cry. Redwall. Speaking of Redwall, no one is worried about Constance. Like, apparently she she has a habit of disappearing for a couple days at a time. Which is something she's never been mentioned doing before. Yeah, they've never mentioned her doing this before. Like, I get it, but they don't, they haven't mentioned it before. Um, It also, like, doesn't make sense. Like, Mertalfus isn't happy about this, but he chalks it up to the oddness of badgers. Setting it from his mind, he goes to sleep. And I'm just like, uh, excuse? You are in the middle this of a is bad writing. Oh, there's yeah. another typo I made. Oh, it's okay, though. It's less I, funny. Yeah. It, it's, it's just, it, it, it feels like so wrong. Like, she wouldn't abandon them during an event like this. She is ride or die for her home. And they think she's just going to, like buzz off to be alone for a little while no she wouldn't do that if she if if she needed alone time she would probably be chilling out like maybe just in one of the tunnels off of cavern hole or like like in the cellar or something yeah in in a room that's not where the bird is yeah like she would not just leave them like or she'd kick everybody out of the kitchen and be like i'm gonna cook by myself for right now stay out of my fucking kitchen exactly but instead he's just like oh no she's just needs some alone time it's like sir Everyone grasps the idiot ball towards the end here. It, they really do. It, it, it's, it's bad frustrating. writing. Yeah, it's bad writing, and it's it's. You said that it like shattered your faith in like these people as a community that they just accept her not being there, mm-hmm. and like I agree because it's bad writing. Like at the very least, Cornflower should be like, where the fuck is Constance? Yeah, where is where is my my buddy here? My teacher? My you know. Where is my friend? Where has she gone? Yeah. It's just, it's bad. Um, Above them, the Corvids catnap, waiting for the hour before dawn. And of course, Constance is getting no sleep. She has figured out that it was probably the raven who locked her in, and that he has some dastardly plan. She's got like this sixth sense going on, where she's like, I have to get out of here, something bad is going to happen. Mm -hmm. She takes... An iron poker from the fireplace, and she starts working on the door hinges. And here's a fun bit of advice for any... Uh, oh, the dog just barked. Sorry. Mork. Mork! Well, yeah, it was one... I thought something fell. <laughs> it's just one bork. But I heard them stand up. Moody says, Who's that outside? Hang on one second. Wanna, I'm gonna, I'm yeah, gonna go check, check, yeah, because Astrid's doing the boofs. We love doggos. They're so good. They definitely don't cause problems all the time. <laughs> boof. Bork. Bjork. Bark. <laughs> it was Astrid. She she probably heard some kids playing outside, but we're going to get like rain and snow later today, so I just kicked her outside to enjoy the weather for a little bit cuz it's like it's still like nice-ish outside, so I just kicked her out to be outside until I have to bring her in when it starts raining/snowing. I'm so sorry that it is March 20th and you're still getting snow. Oh, we will get snow in April. It is Ew. a guarantee. It is a guarantee. The last snowstorm, the 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 last like four or five years we've lived here. Uh, actually, no, it's coming on to six years now. Um, You've been there for so long, <laughs> in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> but every single year we've lived here, there has been a snowstorm in April. Sometimes it's not a very strong snowstorm. Sometimes it like the second year we were up here, it dropped like three feet on us in April. And that was the last snowstorm. We had, like, one last blizzard, and then it was, like, perfect weather after that. So, yeah, we will we will be getting more snow off and on until, like, just the end of April, beginning of May. Anyway, um, back, to, back to the bit of advice I was going to give. Um, 
If you are ever in a situation where you are locked into a room, whether intentionally or accidentally, look to see where the door hinges are. If the hinges, hinges. if the hinges are in the inside of the room, you can start working on those to get them out, basically. Like the hinges in my bedroom door, I can basically just take a pen or a pencil, pop it up and pull it out and I'd be able to get out of my room. You know, so look for the hinges. That is a yeah, good way to get out. and if the hinges are on the outside, I'm sorry. Yeah, if they're on the outside, you're, you know, shit out of luck. Uh. <laughs> you, you learn how to lock pick a door. <laughs> or, Constance needs yeah. to learn how to lock pick a door. Because especially if it's, if it's a, like, this is definitely like one of those key doors where it's like, why does it only lock on the outside? And, and it's one of those key doors. Like, you probably have to lock it from the inside and the outside with the same key, which is why, like, yeah. they can't get it open. If it's locked from the inside, like, if it gets locked from the outside, you can't open it from the inside, which is a design flaw. But uh, those locks should be really easy to pick because it's not going to be, like, a pin and, like, tumbler kind of lock like we mm-hmm. have nowadays. It's going to be, like... Uh, like one of those like old keys that's got like the hole in the end mm-hmm. where when you turn like those are really easy to pick yeah so uh, Constance learn lock picking her lock picking is a big ass fire iron <laughs> this is true yeah uh, so the raven's plan is really it's quite genius uh, a cloth covered plank of wood stealthily placed on the third step of the stairs and lowered just over the edge of the barricade into cavern hole, creating a ramp. It's a very simple thing for the birds to sneak in unheard that way. And it works, obviously, because everybody's mm. fucking asleep. He gets his group in, positions them silently and carefully. All avenues of escape are blocked. And Mankey's can't help but admire his leader. False prophecy or no, he'd taken the Red House. Uh, Constance is in a frenzy some sixth sense letting her know that something terrible is happening she batters at the door and its hinges without mercy or pause she is going at this fucking yeah. she, at the cave fight yes she's just she's furious she knows her friends are in danger and she's trying to get back to them it's that frenzy of like a mother or a parent or a friend who knows there's someone they care about is in danger yeah, we also get, uh, we also get a line from, Mangies, hold on. Hey. Oh, I missed this part. Yeah, I'm sorry. Uh, uh, what? No, I missed that part, that line about, um, Mangies or, or Ironbeak waking them up. I missed that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, a heavy talon raked the sleeping abbot's back. He arched into wakefulness with a grunt of pain. Uh, wake up, my little earth crawlers. This is the day I make you do the dance of death. Ironbeak has captured this great redstone house. Cavern Hole echoed to the triumphant harshness of the Raven General and his fighters, mingled with the confused and terrified cries of shocked creatures. So, you know. Yeah. Good job, Just guys. bird things. Just bird things. Birds. Uh, at the cave fight, Tim takes a wound to the side. He's dragged back by Maddie and Cynthia Bankful, and the group despairs as they think another wave of rats is coming. Sam, though, realizes it's not rats, though. They're shouting Redwall and headed by Matthias brandishing his sword. And Orlando lifts Maddie, who confirms that it is indeed his father. And we can all just imagine Orlando lifting Maddie up with one fucking pop. I will never get tired of this. I will never get tired of badgers just picking mice up with one hand, ever. Just, yep. Everyone's spirits soar when they catch on. Matthias for the soon-to-be reunion with his son. Basil and the others for learning Matthias survived. They dive into the fight with renewed vigor. For the first time, the rats, who have never broken form or shown any fear this whole time, try and flee. But Orlando blocks their way and challenges them. 
The Guasim are a whirling dervish of death, crying out their Lugalog battle cry. Nadaz sees that the battle is turning against them and slips away to hide in the statue of Malkaris. Tim, of course, spots this and he remembers it for later. Uh, Basil and Maddie meet Matthias on the steps. Father and son have a tearful reunion before Basil reminds them there is still a fight going on. Like, they legit, they just both start crying. Let men cry. Show them tears are not a weakness. Let men cry. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Make it normal. It's we, good. This is definitely very different from, like, the single manly tear that uh, Matthias shed earlier in the book. Mm-hmm. Like, that vibe that we had of him, like, just yeah. staring out into nothing, like, being the manly man. I like, think... no, he's got his son back. He's gonna fucking cry. It's like, I think we didn't give Matthias or Brian enough credit where he was being, like, the single manly tear because it... it... It wasn't the time to break down and cry. Because if he broke down... At the same time, though, it did still feel really weird for him to, like, feel so cold. It did. When his wife was freaking the fuck out. It did. Like, yes, yes, okay, Brian, like, we should cut him a little bit of slack, but at the same time, like... (sighs) Brian, why? Men are also allowed to freak the fuck out. Mm Mm-hmm. But again, when you are in the leadership position, sometimes you have to wait to do that. Um, Like another book series I read, I like to read, this one character, she loses her father. But she knows that she she's like the queen. She cannot break down. She cannot let herself feel the emotions she wants to feel. Instead, she has to bury it down and be like, I am here. I am strong. Follow me as you would follow my father and we will survive. You know, because, like, they're literally in the middle of a battle, and she does not have a chance to weep. John Mulaney voice, we bottle our emotions deep down inside, and then we die. (laughs) (laughs) Bury the boy, bury the boy. (laughs) All right. Above them, in the peaceful cops, Slagger uh, lays muttering mad promises to himself. He refuses to admit that he's lost. No, no. He will win. He will rule the Horde somehow. He will get revenge. And he will take the sword. Because by now, he is positive that the sword is magic. Whoever holds it is the ruler. Like, he is absolutely losing his fucking mind. I feel like this, instead of him, like, losing his mind, though, this is Brian playing off of... One, his, his, the paranoia caused by, like, his injuries, because, like, the injuries did cause mental as well as emotional damage to him. There's no denying that, because we've seen how quickly his behavior can shift and change. Traumatized, yeah. He's traumatized. Yeah. And, well, I think the poison could have done significant damage, too, because, oh, yeah. you, you know. Oh, yeah, no, absolutely, but like, also, he's traumatized. Right. And I'm going to keep saying traumatized like that. I'm going to fight you. <laughs> traumatized. <laughs> He's a fox. Ooh, ooh traumatized. I'm going to fight you. Uh, <laughs> come, come down to Alabama and fight me, bitch. <laughs> With a banjo on my knee, bitch. You won't do it. <laughs> <laughs> one, last, one last thing, though, in regards to the sword and the magic. Is like we know that the foxes in. The, let me finish, damn it! Um, no, the fox. Foxes are traditionally like very superstitious, very inclined towards magic, and so that makes sense. That like all that he's seen, like all he's seen this sword do. Of course, he's going to think it's magic by now. So, like by all rights, Matthias should be fucking dead. Hmm. But it is not the sword that is magic, because the sword does not hold the spirit of Martin. Mm -mm. The spirit of Martin lives in Matthias, lives in Madame Mayo, lives in in you. He lives in you. I am gonna throw you out the fucking window. Everything we see. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's fucking Christian allegory. from Lion King too. Come on, um, uh, the, the Lion King. 
Which is based on fucking Hamlet, and the second one is based on fucking Romeo and Juliet, and the third one is based on Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead! (laughs) Which is all Shakespeare, which means it's all weird and goofy and has, like, Christian bullshit, like, Protestant Christian bullshit all throughout it. And sex jokes! <laughs> Much Ado About Nothing is an entire play about sex. <laughs> <laughs> I told you guys we were going to have an energy. All right. Um. Watch, read Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead, everybody. That is my favorite play. Okay, I said all written by Shakespeare. Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead is not actually written by Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. But it was written way after the fact, and it is very good. But it's Shakespearean-inspired, right? Yes, it is based on Hamlet. Right. Because it's Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. And it is them, it's basically their point of view for, uh, from the events happening in the story of Hamlet. And what happens to them. Like, you know, like Lion King one and a half. Mm-hmm. It is that story. It's the same fucking thing. I still love, like, the one gag. I can't remember exactly which play it's from, but, like, as you read this letter, revolve. And, like, it's meant to think, like, turn the thought over in your mind, but they decided to run with it, and they have the actor usually, like, turn in place. (laughs) One of my favorite gags. Oh, it's so good. Anyway. (laughs) Yeah. So, anyway, uh, foxes are superstitious, and Slagger is just kind of descending into his own brain at this point. He's like, la 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 la, can't touch me, thoughts of doom. <laughs> if I run fast enough. Yeah. Can't touch me, gay thoughts. <laughs> anyway. Uh, in Cavern Hole, Mangus is laying the Redwellers' defeat on thick, but they refuse to lay down and take it. They're just like, mm, nah, fuck you. <laughs> Uh, Ambrose sasses them, Brother Rufus refutes the claim that Constance has fled in fear, and the abbot does the thing that he always does, which is try to trade his life for the others. Yeah, I think Uh, that's just mandatory for the abbots at this point. Yeah. Um, which, The Redwallers are fucking spunky. Yeah. It's something you see a lot of leader characters do in the series. Like, there's a really sad example in uh, Full Metal Alchemist, the manga. No! Shut the fuck up. Where the Ishvalans, like, when we get flashbacks to the Ishvalan War, this one old fellow who's like, I'm the leader of the Ishvalans, like, please take me and spare my people. We don't want this fight. And they basically say, too bad. You need to die for what we want and kill him. Like, what? Do you, like, do you think your one life is worth your entire nation? No, you're just one man, and they kill him. I fuck you for bringing up Full Metal Alchemist. Good cry now. Listen, Full Metal Alchemist is a literary masterpiece, and I will take no quarter on that. It is one of the best damn manga slash anime <laughs> series to have ever been made. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just thinking about Mace Hughes now. <laughs> Fuck you. <laughs> sad. Oh, what's this about traumatized? <laughs> I'm gonna throw you up the window. <laughs> it won't be very far fall. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. When Ironbeak tries to bully the abbot, though, Sister May just launches herself at the big bird. She hits him in the chest like an angry burr. She is just, she she is ready to just destroy this bird. Mm-hmm. She is, I would not be surprised if she had like tipped something she was carrying in poison. And the only reason she didn't manage to get him is because like his feathers are too thick. She just literally, the, 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 the scene's so good. She goes, it's before any beast could stop her, Sister May leapt at the raven leader. She kicked and bit, tearing plumage from the raven's puffed-out breast. You big bully! You leave our abbot alone! She shouted. She's She's so fucking spunky. I love her. Sister May for next abbot. Yes. 100%. Iron Beak fucking freaks out, though, because, like, oh god, what the fuck? Yeah. Because he wasn't expecting that, obviously. And he manages to get her off, and she's attacked by the other birds, but literally... Right when that happens. I love how they describe it. The thunderbolt struck. Yeah. Yeah. 
Strike strikes, and Ironbeak does not stand a chance against her. Every time they tumble, she comes out on top. He cries for help out of desperation, and then Constance arrives like a furious Warren. Sicko mode. She just fucking bold, like just just bowls right in. She is holy shit. Tasmanian. I'm just imagining like Tasmanian devil blur lines as she just comes flying in. The yeah, barricade basically. fell with an ear-splitting crash, and Constance was in the middle of the rooks like a striped whirlwind. I can just imagine her, like, making terrifying badger noises. Oh, yeah. Because when badgers are pissed, they just turn into, like, little shrieky... Like, if you've ever heard a Tasmanian devil, badger, like, angry badger sounds aren't far off from that. Yeah, honestly, like, if they weren't, like... If one, like... Tasmanian devils are marsupial. Mm-hmm. And badgers are a large mustelid. Uh, if I didn't know that, I would think that they were related. Mm-hmm. Same here. But they are not. Convergent they're just a similar ecological niche. Convergent evolution. Yeah. Uh, I think everything would be better if it was a marsupial. Uh, but that's just me. Uh, anyway. You're not biased at all. No, not at all. Uh, Cornflower and Mrs. Churchmouse only just managed to snatch the babies away to safely in the, into the kitchen. And then they go to watch the chaos of liberation once the divins are safe under the kitchen table. <laughs> Strike's flight is back, and she revels in it by harrying the panicked Ironbeak. He cannot escape her. Every time he tries to go anywhere in the Great Hall, she is on him. She is moving faster than him. She can see and predict every move he's going to make because she is the better fighter than he is. Mm-hmm. She is the better hunter. She and is she's a bigger. mountain bird. And she's bigger. Like, And this is true. Ravens are very smart and very good hunters. Red kites are better. Mm-hmm. Not to say that ravens aren't incredibly acrobatic, but it's there's a difference between like acrobatics for fun and acrobatics for I need this or I will die. Yeah. And General Ironbeak has also been like out of practice. They've been in Redwall for months at this point mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. so like there's only so much that he can do he hasn't had the same practice that he used to have by being up north they've been living off of like fruits and shit from the orchard they haven't mm-hmm. been like hunting they haven't been fighting fighting so they're yeah they's... and they're in a confined space which he's not and... used to flying in yeah, Iron Beak is definitely not used to flying, and I would argue that Strike is more used to making tight turns because of the mountains. Mm-hmm. So, like, she's just very used to it. And she kills him. She strikes, and he falls to the Great Hall floor, a crumpled heap of feathers. listening. If you like this podcast, please follow us on Twitter at Abby Archives and join our Discord, linked in the description below. You can also rate and review us on your podcatcher of choice, Spotify, or Apple Podcasts. This podcast is a Hearthside Enclave production. 
You can find this podcast, as well as links for our other productions, such as Hope's Hearth, an actual play podcast, and Post-Apocalyptic News Radio, an audio drama in a post-apocalyptic setting, at hsenclave on Twitter. Remember to wash your paws like good dibbins and take care of yourselves. Bye!